Hear the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. As we go to, go to prayer this morning, as we bow our heads, as we just seek to, to narrow our thoughts and our attention and our affection in the person of Jesus Christ, he's really, you know what he's saying there, you've heard these words before, he's talking about, he's offering us an exchange. The idea of a yoke in, in this sense is a yoke was a, a, a rabbi's teaching, it was, here's what it means to, to be a follower of mine, to be my student, to belong to me. You know, in, in that vein, without going into an entire lesson in the scriptures, you know, I think we've all got a yoke that we have subscribed to, that we have taken upon ourselves. This is what I have to do to make life work. These are the responsibilities I have to meet in order to be the person everyone wants me and, and thinks I ought to be. These are the rules I need to keep. These are the obligations I need to maintain. This is the front I need to keep up. This is the smile I need to keep pasted on. And, and some days we don't worry about that at all. By God's grace, we just have good days and good seasons where walking with the Lord is a joy. But then there are times when we take that, that yoke of works, of slavery, back on ourselves all over again. In the Sunday school class I sat in on this morning, it, it, we're reminded in Galatians 5.1 that it is for freedom that Christ set us free, so we should not again take a yoke of slavery upon ourselves. And I'm using all of this to simply ask you this question and then give you a, a moment of quiet to, to, to work it out with the Lord in your own heart. What's the yoke you carried in across your shoulders this morning? What is the burden? What is the question? Where is your soul perhaps just sighing and weary? Jesus offers to to make an exchange. What do we sing in that song? Bring your sorrows and trade them for joy. So here's your prayer. Lord Jesus, this morning, in exchange for your joy, I give you my whatever it is. In exchange for your joy, trusting your promise, I give you my question, my need, my burden. And if you're not there today, that's cool. Just offer him your praise. What do you want to trade in with Jesus this morning? Oh, Father, we understand, we need to remember, I need to remember this morning that, that following Jesus is not meant to be a, an entire life of sober faces and, and, and measured pace and, and, and heavy thinking, Father, that that, that word joy and, 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 and the, the call to freedom, these are the things that characterize and define and flavor the gospel. And Father, we don't want to diminish that, but we do know that following Jesus in this life at times is very hard. And Father, I thank you that we can come back to the altar, so to speak, and that really the altar, Jesus is the altar. He is the sacrifice. He is the all in all. And Father, what a beautiful promise Jesus gives us. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you joy. You can trade in your sorrows and find 
fresh hope in me. Father, that is one of the many reasons we come back here each and every Sunday morning. We come because we're called to. We come because we need to. And then, Father, hopefully in somewhere in the midst of that all, we come because we want to. Not just because we want to hear a sermon and sing pretty songs, but we want to worship Jesus who laid his life down for us. And Father, now as we move into your word, as we dig into another challenging stretch of scripture, Father, I pray that as much as any other day that the Holy Spirit would be the one who teaches us through this simple little exercise we call preaching. Father, I, I offer you myself today and pray that you would be the one who takes the words and and speaks through them to all hearts in attendance, including my own. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters, my friends here that, that I've known a long time, and those who may be new to us today. Father, that each and every one, you have a, a message, you have a lesson, you have a revelation you want to give to us, and I pray that our hearts, Lord, having unburdened ourselves before you, are now open and ready to receive what it is that you have to say. So Holy Spirit, be our teacher. You already dwell within us. You promise to, to be present among us. Guide us in truth. Guard us from error. Deliver us from apathy and distraction and indifference. Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus this morning today. May we see Jesus clearly in the preaching of the Word. May we see Jesus only in the preaching of the Word. And Father, when we walk out these doors, as we always do in a little while, may it be with fresh hope, renewed joy, a deeper understanding of the rest that we have in Jesus Christ, because he laid his life down for us and then took it up again in victory. It's him we praise, it's him we seek, and it is in his name that we now pray, as all God's people said together, amen, amen. Have a seat. And as you're being seated, boys and girls, you can head out. Children's church time has come. Your five-year-olds, your second graders, and everybody in between, uh, they can go off to children's churches. I invite you to, to meet me once again. Uh, in Mark chapter 14, uh, we are now at a, at a fairly rapid pace, beginning to move toward the conclusion in our study of Mark's gospel. We're in the thick of chapter 14, very lengthy chapter. Uh, this last, uh, I told you a couple of weeks ago, as you hit the latter portion of Mark's gospel, the pace slows considerably. The intensity rises, but the pace slows, and we're shown more and more of these final days, and now we're into the final hours of Jesus' earthly life. And just so you know where we're going over the next month or so, um, we are going, we are aiming to finish, as would be appropriate, with the story in John 16 of the resurrection on Easter Sunday. How appropriate is it that God worked that out for us? And, and we're just beginning or we're continuing the journey between now and then to see what these final days and hours of Jesus' earthly life were all about. And I want you to know as you're making your way to John chapter 14, or excuse me, to Mark chapter 14, we're going to look at John later, we're in Mark this morning, but here in Mark chapter 14, we're going to look at the scripture in just a slightly, not erratically, but a slightly different way this morning, and then I'm going to read a few verses, picking up where we left off last Sunday, and then I am going to leap over, I'll refrain from using the word Passover, that might be confusing. Using, but I will leap over or I will bypass about three dozen verses and then we're going to pick it up uh, uh, down near the end of Mark chapter 14. And when I do that, I think you'll see why we are going about it in that way today. So just be prepared for a big time jump in the middle of the text and, uh, and then I'm going to do my best here by God's grace to tie it all together. So with all that said, we're going to begin this morning our study of Mark's gospel reading in Mark 14 verse 27, 
or this is what the Word of God says. Actually, I want to bump up to verse 26. We saw the Last Supper last Sunday. It says at the conclusion of that meal, verse 26, after singing a hymn, Jesus and the disciples, we now know the 11 remaining faithful disciples, went out to the Mount of Olives. Here is where this morning's text begins, verse 27. And Jesus said to them, the 11 disciples, you will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, said to the Lord, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing also. Now, leave off at the end of verse 31, jump ahead with me, same chapter to verse 66. Jesus has been betrayed, Jesus has been arrested and taken into custody. And now in verse 66, we see the fulfillment of what Jesus just promised. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself by the fire, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you were talking about. And he went out onto the porch. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. And he began to curse and to swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. Immediately, a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And Peter began to weep. You know, last Sunday in our look at the story, Mark's account of the Last Supper, we witnessed what I would consider to be perhaps the most intensely personal moment that Jesus, at least that we're told, Jesus ever shared with his disciples prior to going to the cross. And, and while surely in that moment, and we touched on this a little bit when we were together last Sunday, surely in that moment, the disciples could not have understood the full significance, the full importance of, of what the bread and the cup represented and all that was to follow. Surely, at the very least, I believe that in that moment at the Last Supper, Jesus' disciples must have recognized in a way that they had never known before how much Jesus loved them how deeply he cared for each and every one of them. And as such, it only seems, it would only seem right to me to assume that as they then left the upper room and they made their way out of the upper room, out of the city of Jerusalem, down through the valley and up the Mount of Olives, it would be reasonable for us to assume that as that short journey, that walk of 10 or 15 minutes took place, that the glow would linger, Right? That, 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 that the mood would remain the same, that, that this, this affection, this kindness that had been expressed and been demonstrated would, would continue to, to flavor their conversation, that more words perhaps of affection and gratitude would flow, that would be, as I see it, a fairly safe assumption. But what that assumption does actually is only serve to make what Jesus did say to them on that walk all the more shocking Look again at what it said in verse 27. He's set the mood. He's 
expressed his love. He's told them how much he cares. And then the next thing Mark says, he tells them, is this. You will all fall away. Because it's written, and here he's quoting Zechariah 13, 7. It is written, it was written long, long ago that I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now that word to, st- to, to fall away, your Bible may translate it differently, but the word means to stumble in a sinful way. It simply means to stumble, to fall down in a sinful way. Not to the point or or in the sense, and we need to make sure we understand this correctly, it doesn't mean to stumble or fall away in a sense that they were going to somehow fall out of the faith permanently, that they no longer belong to Jesus Christ, that their salvation had been revoked or would be revoked in some way. That's not what it means. But what it does mean, at least in this instance, is this. Those disciples were about to do something for which such a fate seemed appropriate that this could be the end, that this could destroy everything. Because what did he say? You're all going to fall away. The shepherd's going to be struck, and the sheep are going to scatter. So I don't know about you, but putting all that together, I can hardly blame Peter for the way that he responded in verse 29. When it says, look at your Bible, Peter said to him, listen, Lord, even though all, everyone else may fall away, I will not. And when, when Jesus pushes back, he, he returns the favor even harder in verse 31. He kept saying, that is, he was repeating insistently, adamantly, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. After all, Peter was the rock. Jesus said so himself. Peter, this confession of faith, that's where I'm going to build the church. You got it. Bingo. You understand. You're the rock. You were Simon. You shall be Peter. But then what do we see? Then it happened. Just like Jesus said it would. Peter, the rock. I mean, they all fell away. They were all saying the same thing. But Peter, as the leader of the pack, so to speak, he does so just as Jesus said And what that does, well, it prompts a lot of questions, but it prompts two specifically that we're going to dig around in this morning and see if we can can put together to understand exactly what happened here and and what difference or significance it ought to have for us today. So basically, what I want to do with this passage, these two divided portions of Scripture that tell one complete story, is in the time we have left this morning, wrestle with two questions. And I do mean wrestle because they're not easy questions. They're simple, but they're not easy Two questions we're going to dig through based on this story, many of us know it well, of Peter's promised denial. And the first question is simply and plainly this. Question number one, how did Peter get into this mess? (laughs) How was it that Peter, the rock, the leader of the disciples, got into this mess? In other words, to put it more simply, why did Peter deny Jesus? Now, I'll say right up front, there's no way in the world I would ever claim to have the full and final answer to that question. And I don't think anybody else would rightly claim that they do either. God, only God knows truly what goes on in any one person's heart, what leads them to, to the places they go. We understand it's prophesied, but at the same time, Peter did it. So I don't know the full answer. I don't know the final answer. But as I dug through this passage, I did find some clues. There's some clues in the text that help suggest how it was Peter got into this mess. Why it was that in the end he did exactly what Jesus said he would do. And so we want to see what those are, in part just to understand what it was that happened here with Peter. But I believe also, and perhaps in a more practical way, so that I can guard my heart and you can guard yours against the same. Because Peter was a man just like us. 
So here's some of the clues, just to put them together, that I believe are found in the text that help us understand why Peter did what he did here to the Lord. First one is this, and it's probably the most obvious. It's probably also the most consequential. Number one, the first reason Peter found himself in this mess is because in the moment he trusted his own resolve. Peter was a man, and this wasn't new for Peter, but here it's more dramatic than ever. Peter was a man who trusted his own resolve. It's impossible to miss. I mean, just look again at the two verses I read a moment ago. Verse 29, Peter says, even though all may fall away, I will not. Peter kept saying, verse 31, insistently, even if I have to to die with you, Lord, I will not deny you. And you know what? As I read those questions, I thought, how often do I do the same thing? And so do you as a follower of Christ. Lord of all, and we might not ever actually say this to someone, but I bet we've processed it at some point if you've known the Lord long at all. Perhaps in your heart, think, Lord, I would never do X. I'd never compromise on Y. I'd never forsake my marriage vows. I'd never go to this place. I'd never look at that. I'd never treat people in this particular way. I'd never make that mistake. I'd never commit that sin that other people seem so to, to so easily do. I won't give in. I'll never compromise. And we've all got perhaps these areas in our life and think, there's a lot of things I'll do wrong, but I'll never do that. I mean, we've all said it. I'll never buy a minivan, right? <laughs> and then what do we do? We buy a minivan. But seriously, seriously, I don't know if you've noticed, but so often in our lives and in the lives of those we love, those end up being the very ways in which we do stumble. Paul warned us against it in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall, because where he thinks he's strong, he or she is actually weak. One of the most convicting things I ever read And read each year in Oswald Chambers in my utmost for his highest, one of the most gripping things that I've come back to again and again is he makes the point in one of those classic daily readings when he says this quote, and I want you to think about this for just a moment. He says, when it comes to the sins that we commit and the ways in which we stumble, as Peter did here, he says, quote, unguarded strength. Unguarded strength is a double weakness. He says, for you will note as you read through the scriptures that the Bible characters always fell on their strong points, never on their weak ones. You think about that. They always fell on their strong points, never on their weak ones. And that's what Peter's doing here. He thinks, Lord, of all the things that I have done wrong, this is the one I'll never do. I'll never walk away. I'll never deny I know you. And yet within a very short span of time, an hour, two, less, he does it. He finds himself denying the Lord in part because he trusted his own resolve And secondly, and really I believe in almost equal measure, the reason he felt that way, the reason he was so bold in that way and found himself in this mess is because in the moment he compared himself to others. He looked at his life and he compared himself with others. Again, what did he say in verse 29? Even though all may fall away, I never will. I don't know about you, but I picture Peter in this moment as they're walking on the road to the Mount of Olives, sort of sidling up to the Lord, arm on the shoulder, and it's like, Lord, you know what those other guys are like, right? I mean, you've seen them, right? You know what they, they are capable of. You know how weak they can be. But I'm different. I'm different. 
I'll die with you if that's what it takes. Now, let me ask you something. Where does that bravado come from? Where does, where does that kind of conviction, that, that kind of swagger emerge from? Not from looking into the eyes of Jesus, I'll tell you that, but from looking around at his fellow travelers, looking around at his companions and saying, well, compared to him, I'm doing okay. Next to him, I am soaring and strong. And he's comparing himself to others. And he's looking at them saying, well, I can see him stumbling. We all know he'll fold first, <laughs> but not me. I'm different. Not me. It's one of the most dangerous lies any believer can ever swallow. Is that, that other people do things that I don't. And I don't do things that other people do. It's what he's saying here. And it's why he fell. Number one, he trusted his own resolve. Number two, he compared himself to others. Number three, this is interesting, he only heard half the story. If you look at the text, I think you can, can see that Peter, one of the reasons, a third reason factor in his denial of Jesus is that in the moment, he only heard half the story. Let me ask you something, just a personal question between you and me. I'm not asking for a show of hands because you wouldn't give it to me when you hear the question, but as you think about your week, how many relational conflicts did you get into this week? That's not the end of the question, okay? <laughs> how many relational conflicts did you venture into, find yourself in this week that either could have been shut down midstream or been avoided altogether if you'd simply listened to everything the other person was saying? How many times is that true in our lives? Conflicts could be avoided if I wait for you to finish what you're saying, as I listen to you, as you finish what you're saying, rather than using the latter part of what you're saying to formulate in my mind the shut it down response, to put you in your place and grant me my victory. It's one of the most fundamental principles we teach in marriage mentoring. It's one of the first rules and, uh, of relational conflict resolution that I always try to communicate to couples in, in premarital counseling. Say, the deal is this. You've got to listen not to respond. You've got to listen to understand what's being said and then begin to draw your conclusions and then begin to formulate your answer. And the reason I bring it up is because I would ask you to imagine with me the difference it would have made here if Peter and the disciples had done that. Because see, here's what I'm convinced of based on the text. I believe that by the end of what is in our Bibles, verse 27, Peter was done listening. I believe he'd already stopped listening to Jesus because if he had paid attention to the Lord's words all the way through verse 28, if he had waited to listen to the whole story, I believe that is what Jesus said in verse 28, what they would find themselves asking the Lord about. Because here's what it says. Jesus says, verse 27, you'll all fall away. Already what Peter decided, oh, no, I won't. Oh, no, I won't. Just take a breath and I'll tell you. You'll fall away because it's written, I'll strike down the shepherd. The sheep will be scattered. But, verse 28, after I've been raised, after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Raised from what? Raised when? Raised how? Jesus, what are you talking about? And you're going to see us in Galilee. Wait, well, if we do the very simple, obvious math between verse 27 and verse 28, between the words you're saying here and listen to the whole story, that means whatever terrible thing we're about to do, whatever stumble we're about to make isn't permanent. There's a happy ending. But they weren't listening. Peter wasn't. 
listening. And because he only heard half the story, because he only heard what he thought he needed to hear, and he was formulating his answer to tell the Lord why, Lord, you are so wrong. Hearing only half the story, he drew a very bad conclusion, and it also contributed to his denial. Trusted his own resolve, compared himself to others, only heard half the story forth, he followed at a distance. Peter got into so much trouble. Peter got into this mess because in the moment, under stress and trial, he began following the Lord at a distance. For this, I want you to shift your attention with me from the prediction of the denial to the fulfillment down in verse 66, where the latter part of our reading begins. Because here's what it says beginning in verse 66. As Peter was below in the courtyard, now we should stop right there, especially because we skipped 35 verses and we don't know what happened in between to say, whose courtyard? Wait, where is Peter now and what is he doing there? We need to put the pieces of the story together. And the reason we need to, that Peter, to know whose courtyard this was and why Peter was there is because it's very instructive to understanding why he did what he did. And the answer is found in the section we skipped. We're going to get to this in detail in a couple of weeks. Let me give you a glimpse of it right now. Look at verse 53. Because in verse 53, after Judas comes and gives Jesus that kiss of betrayal. Jesus is then arrested and taken into custody. This is what Mark tells us. They led Jesus away out of the Garden of Gethsemane to the high priest and all the chief priests and all the elders and all the scribes, all those guys who've been against him for three years gathered together and Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. Now, as I said, we're going to get into this in a lot more detail a couple of Sundays from now. But we need to know about this courtyard. It's the courtyard of the high priest. And what Mark doesn't tell us, but the other gospels do, is that inside that building, one floor up, Jesus is enduring his first round of abuse. He is being beaten. He is being spit upon. He's being falsely accused. He's being blindfolded. He's being mocked. That's what's happening on the other side of the wall and one floor up. Peter, though, is out in the courtyard. And it says, when the moment came, what did Peter say? Even if I have to, what? Die with you, I will not deny you. Well, when Peter realizes that's what's really happening, somehow his swagger begins to diminish. Somehow his conviction begins to fade. And when Jesus, they begin walking Jesus off in chains to the high priest's house, what does he choose to do? I'm not going to walk in step with you, Lord. I'm going to hang back. Uh, this is not, I didn't sign up for this after all. I'm going to follow you at a distance. What I'm simply saying to you is somewhere on that road, getting out of step with Jesus, walking at his own pace, hanging back. It isn't what I signed up for. Somehow Peter's bravado, his swagger, just evaporated into the night air. And it was gone. Why? In part because he began to follow at a distance. Separation of fellowship with Jesus. Yes, Jesus was being carried away, but what did he say? Oh, I'll never, I'll never leave your side. But he did. And the doubt began to take over. And that's why when the moment of confrontation finally came, the fifth reason, the fifth factor in how Peter got himself into this mess is having trusted his own resolve, looked at his companions, listened to half the story, and began to follow at a distance. When the moment of confrontation finally came, fifthly, he yielded to fear. Peter just flat out yielded to fear. 
As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. And he went out on the porch. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, This is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you're one of them, for you are a Galilean too. But he began to curse and swear. He took an oath as really what he did before God, saying, I do not know this man you're talking about. Now, if you listen closely, if you're looking at the text, the word fear never appears. There's no variation of it. It doesn't say he was scared. It doesn't say he was frightened. There's nothing like that. But it's written all over those verses. Fear. All-consuming fear. And what we really see in this picture is Peter. What do we know about Peter? Peter the grizzled fisherman. Peter the, the tough guy. Peter who feared no man. Successful in business. Successful in life. Uh, ready for all comers. Uh, a little while later, sliced the ear off a guy because he was so angry, right? This guy's tough. And he's in control, and and he always had an answer, and he always had a word. What happens in this moment? He wilts at the question of a teenage doorkeeper. (laughs) He can't handle it, because all these factors are working and swirling and building till the fear is overwhelming, and he gives in. And that's how Peter got into this mess. Trusted himself, got out of step with the Lord. Let the feelings and the emotions rule his heart. And you know, if that's all we knew, we'd say, what? This is a hopeless story, right? There's no hope for this guy. There's no happy ending. This can't possibly go anywhere good except for the fact that what? This isn't where the story ended. This isn't where the story ended at all. And, and we're going to see later on what it meant for Peter Most of us, I think, know the story. But rather than just simply go and read that happier ending, I think it prompts a second question. The second question we're going to talk about this morning, and frankly, of the two, it's the harder one to work with, at least as far as I'm concerned. But when it popped into my head Wednesday morning, I realized it was the question we have to, at least I believe, the question we have to deal with this morning as we look at what Peter did here, denying his Lord. And that question, that second question we're going to look at this morning together is this. Why didn't Peter end up like Judas? Why didn't Peter end up like Judas for having done what he did to the Lord here? Because here's the thing. Here's why I asked the question. On the same spiritually dark and stormy night, both men, Peter and Judas, personally and grievously sinned against the Lord. And on that same spiritually dark and stormy night, both men, Peter and Judas, experienced the weight of crushing, soul emptying regret. They wept, were sorry. But when it's all said and done, one of them goes down as history's most notorious villain. And when it's all said and done, the other one is the chief apostle of the church, the first preacher of the gospel. The first one to preach, and all these people are getting saved. And I look at that, and you should look at that. We should all look at that and say, what accounts for the difference? Why didn't Peter end up like Judas when both of them, in their own way, sinned as bad as they possibly could have against the Lord? 
And I will confess that this too seems like an impossible mystery. And I will also confess that I feel like in some ways, and I've felt it for about the last three days, that it's sort of a fool's errand to even try and understand the difference. But again, I think the Bible helps. I think if we read our Bibles and understand our Bibles, they help us with this question. And here's why I think it's important to wrestle through. Because if as you sit here this morning, you are at all concerned about your own spiritual condition, And if as you sit here this morning, you are at all concerned with the spiritual well-being and condition of those around you and those in your life that you know and love, we should listen to what the Bible says to us about this question of the difference between Peter and Judas. Because part of the answer is a matter of relationship. Say relationship. Part of the answer is a matter of relationship. And to explain what I mean... I want you to hold your place in Mark 14, and I want you to go to the right in your Bible to John 13. Turn real quickly in your Bible with me to John 13. I'm going to read several verses here because I think we need all of them to help us with this part of the question. And the scene here is simply this. It's the same night. Now, last week we saw the Mark's account of the Last Supper. He does it in part of a chapter. He tells us the story, the bread and the cup, and all the rest. Well, John gives us a very different insight into the same scene. In fact, John, Mark tells us very little of what was said around the table that night in the upper room. John, on the other hand, gives us six full chapters of the conversation and the prayers that Jesus shared with his disciples around the bread and cup, and before going out to his betrayal. We are entering into that scene right here. John 13, 1, follow me as I read the first several verses of the chapter. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, loved them to the end, during supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself, and he poured water into the basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to who? Peter, Simon Peter. And he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. So Simon Peter then said to him, Lord, then don't just wash my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He, the one who has bathed, needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. And for this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Here's what Jesus meant by that. Jesus meant, Peter, you have trusted me. Right? He's already made the great declaration. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter, you know who I am, and you've trusted me. And because you have trusted me, you are mine. Spiritually speaking, your heart is clean. But guess what, Peter? Your feet still get dirty. You walk into sin each and every day. Sometimes you mean it more than others, but you do it. Little sins, big sins, and there's the metaphor. Your heart has been washed clean, but your feet still get dirty. And when your feet get dirty, they need to be washed. We need to confess our sins because he 
who promises faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Your heart's clean, Peter, you're mine, but your feet get dirty. And here's what I want you to know. Here's the implied lesson in that there is as such, because your heart is clean, there's nothing you can ever do to sever this relationship. It can't be broken. It can't be broken because your heart is clean. But more indirectly, what's his message to Judas? But one of you here isn't clean in that way. I'm washing your feet, but your heart is still dirty. You're near me, but you're not with me because you've not repented of sin. That's a problem of massive eternal significance. So what am I saying? I'm saying at a baseline, part of the reason Peter didn't end up like Judas is simply a matter of relationship. He knew the Lord. And once you know the Lord, it can't be taken away. Jesus said it himself. Go read John chapter 10. Once you're in his hand, can't get out. No one can snatch you from the Father's hand. You have eternal life. So again, part of the reason Peter didn't end up like Judas is because by faith, he already belonged to Jesus. But there's more. Because as someone who was already clean, Peter, I believe, understood something that Judas evidently didn't. And what Peter understood, this is the second part of the equation, Peter understood the nature of mercy. Say mercy. Peter understood the nature of God's mercy. Because if you consider, you don't need to turn there, but listen. Mark doesn't tell us what became of Judas, but Matthew does. And what Matthew tells us in Matthew 27, 3 is this, that when Judas, who had betrayed him, listen to this, when he saw that he had been condemned, Jesus had been condemned, he, Judas, felt remorse. He was sorry. And he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what do we care? Figure it out yourself. And Judas threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, went away, hanged himself. Do you see what Judas was trying to do there? He was, listen, literally trying to pay for his sin. He's literally trying to pay for his sin, to cover the debt to unring the bell, to literally find a way to pay in his own works for the wrong that he'd done. Now, I don't know if that's because he had no concept of God's mercy whatsoever, that he'd missed it entirely all those years of walking with Jesus, or if he just believed that based on what he's done, he just deemed himself too far beyond the reach of God's mercy. I don't know which one it is, or if it's a combination of both. All we know is he didn't receive it. He didn't go for it. He did not throw himself on God's mercy. And what did he discover? He literally discovered that the wages of sin is death. Because he tried to pay for it himself. On the other hand, and I'm glad there's another hand, Peter's sorrow led him to repentance. The sorrow of Peter led him to repentance. We aren't shown where it happened. The Bible doesn't give us the words of the prayer that he prayed. We're only sure because we go to the end of the story and then we work our way backwards. We connect the dots as students of the scripture that somewhere between that third denial and the end of that weekend, Peter threw himself on the mercy of God. He said, oh Lord, you were right. I was wrong. 
I have no hope apart from you, but in you, in you there's hope. Maybe he clung to the words that he once heard uttered from Jesus' own lips, John 6, 37, whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Peter said, I don't know how it's possible, but I'm going to give it a shot. And I'll throw myself on the mercy of God. And that relationship and mercy is why Peter did not, when it was all said and done, end up like Judas. Let me ask you a couple of questions and then we're done. Based on what we looked at here this morning. After looking at this story, this is a very, I really want me, I want you, I want us to think about this question. Do you this morning understand, believer or unbeliever, whatever your spiritual condition is here this morning, do you understand in a fresh way after looking at this story that sin really is nothing to mess around with? Do you understand sin is nothing to mess around with? It's not, I'll take care of these nine things, but I'm allowed to behave this way with number 10. Well, that isn't really a big deal. Nobody gets hurt. Do you understand that sin is a really big deal? And that if you don't go to Jesus with it in the first place, your destiny is the same, though the circumstances are different as Judas. It will always leave you where it left Judas, hopeless and eternally condemned. And even this morning for those, this is a hard thing, but even for those of us in Christ, those of us this morning who are followers of the Son, again, the relationship can't be severed and don't let anybody tell you different. The relationship can't be severed, but sin can take you some pretty awful places. If it can happen to Peter, it can happen to you. If it can happen to Peter, it can happen to me. Let him or her who thinks they're all that watch out. Because we think we stand, and that's precisely oftentimes where we fall. Do you understand your sin is nothing to keep playing with? Second, can you also understand now with that awareness, can you understand why we so desperately need God's mercy and why, actually I was conversing with someone right before the service about this very thing, why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. That I am a great sinner, but Jesus is a greater Savior. That as a believer, nothing can snatch me out of his hand. Do you understand what Jesus will do if you come to him for mercy, whatever you have done, however far you've strayed, however sternly you've rebelled, however cold and indifferent your heart has become, if you're still breathing, you can receive mercy. You can be forgiven. You can be cleansed. You can be transformed. After all, after all, remember the greatest victories Peter ever won for Christ came after he denied him three times. That's what the big idea of the message this morning is this, that on this side of heaven, none of us is ever beyond the need nor the reach of God's grace. This side of heaven, there's not a single one of us in this room who's beyond the need of God's mercy and grace, nor are you this morning beyond the reach of it either. Let's bow together. 
This is a heavy story. It brings us face to face with reality. And one of the things that's best about the Bible is that the Bible, God's Word, never flinches from telling us the whole truth. No one understands the consequences of sin more than our Heavenly Father. But no one has an answer for our sin except our Heavenly Father. And as we move in these coming weeks toward the cross, we realize why it was Jesus had to die, why no other price was going to be enough to ever pay. Because it required a perfect sacrifice. It required an infinite sacrifice. God himself had to shed blood for my forgiveness and yours. I don't just invite you, I plead you this morning to respond to whatever it is God is putting his finger on in your heart today. Not the preacher, not the message, not emotion, but where the Lord is saying, hey, you need to to bring this to me. You need to stop making an excuse. You need to quit saying it's not a big deal. And you need to understand that I don't condemn you, but I convict you. The Lord is saying that you might come running back to me. I don't know what it is that God wants to deal with in your heart today or maybe dealing with in your heart right now. I just know from personal experience, but by the time you've gone home and had lunch, you're probably going to forget that the moment might pass and we seize moments when God goes to work. We need to answer him now. We're going to close here with a song of worship as we always do. I want you to stand as we pray and then go into that song. And I'm going to invite those who are our prayer partners to uh, just make your way down to the front in case there's one or two or three or more who just need someone to, to talk with or to pray for them. And, and you don't have to get up. There's nothing magic about walking up and praying with somebody else except that sometimes it helps. And I'm just going to ask as I go to prayer and then as we sing this last song, that if God is dealing with your heart, that you would right there where you're standing just relent and release it to him to bring your sorrows and trade them for joy. Because as we sang, it's from the ashes that new life is born and Jesus is calling. And if as we sing and if as I pray, you want to come pray with one of our prayer partners, we'll be down here said there's nothing magic about it, but sometimes it helps. Just don't walk out the door the same as you came, saying, I'm, I'm going to hang on, I'm going to cover up, I'm going to continue to excuse it. The mercy of Jesus is greater than the security of your sin. And he says, come to me. Father, we get scared by our sin. We get scared by coming clean. But Father, we can't, I can't, I can't find a single story in, in your word anywhere that says someone regretted confessing their sin and coming to you for mercy. That though the, the moment of confession and exposure may be devastating, that that's where you begin to go to work 
because we're not any longer standing in our, our own resolve. We're not measuring ourselves next to others. We're not only hearing half the story and all the rest. Father, would you help us to see, especially those of us who are so burdened today, to see that there's no gift like the gift of the mercy of God. And there's no joy like the joy of knowing my feet have been washed clean. Father, we love you. We need you. We trust you. And we look to you now. Hear our prayers. Hear our song. And help us to walk in step with you in the coming week. In Jesus' name, let's sing together.